And uh, we're going to be speaking out of Judges today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is uh, a privilege to open your word. And uh, God, we know we get to hear your voice when we read and speak and meditate on your word. You're speaking to us for our good. We thank you for that opportunity, God, and uh, just teach us, conform us, change us. By your word we pray, in Christ's holy name. God's people said, amen. 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 Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. Towards the, well, about a quarter of the way, not quite a quarter of the way through your Bible, if you're, if you're new to it. Well, hey, I'll... A word of introduction as you're getting there. All during the 400 years covered in the book of Judges, the nation of Israel uh, followed a predictable pattern. If you've done any study in the book of Judges, you've seen the, uh, the little circle. And it starts out where they're enjoying a time of, of blessing. Things are going well. They're tearing it up against their enemies. And then they kind of forget that it's Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. And they start to drift into acting like the nations around them, the nations that God had driven out to make room for them. And, and you can't play around with sin. You can't play around with idolatry. And when you drift into sin, what comes next? Who's seen the wheel? What comes after that? Got problems. Got oppression got slavery, things go bad. Prosperity, blessings, get into idolatry, causes trouble. And then what did they do? They had enough sense to eventually, sometimes many years later, cry out to God again, cry out in repentance. God, we need you. I'm sorry. And then in time, God brings a restoration. So you see that pattern. And uh, they would serve faithfully while they followed the strong leadership of a good judge. And often when the judge died or they had no leader, they would desert God and begin to live in disobedience, worshiping the pagan gods of the Canaanites. When they rebelled against the Lord, he sent his judgment upon them by allowing Israel to be oppressed by enemies. After time, Israel would repent of sins, and God would raise up a deliverer. And that's the pattern we're going to read about here in a little bit. In Judges chapter 3, verse 12, Israel sinned against God, and the Lord caused Eglon, the king of Moab, to become strong. Eglon invaded Israel with the help of the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they oppressed Israel for 18 years. When they repented, God raised up a man named Ehud to be their deliverer. Ehud assassinated Eglon and led Israel to victory and freedom. And this story is going to have something to teach us today if we have ears to hear it. Today our problem is not the Moabites, the Ammonites, or the Amalekites. In fact, the biggest fight we're going to have is the fight with ourselves. Amen? In Israel's defeat of Eglon, we see a picture of the battle we're supposed to be fighting every day. I'll say one more thing before we read. It's not God's will 
It never has been and never will be. It's not God's will for his people to be in bondage. It's not his will for his people to be slaves. All right, Judges chapter 3. We're going to read uh, New King James, which was a new thing not that long ago. Right? We just, just were talking about. Judges 3 and verse 12. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. We think that's Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. And when the children of Israel cried out to who? The Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was a double-edged and cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon, Eglon was a very fat man. And I remember even as a kid picturing Jabba the Hutt as <laughs> Eglon as, I, as I'm reading this. But it doesn't say that in the Bible. That's just how I, I imagine it. Verse 18. All right, we'll bring it back here. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So he kick, kicks the people out. Here's the secret message. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh. By the way, this is a throwing knife, but closest thing I had. And thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then he who had went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, He's probably attending to his needs in the cool chambers. That going to the bathroom possibly is what that might mean. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sierra. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, 
seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Amen. The word of the Lord. This verse describes the horrible, uh, the first part describes the horrible oppression Israel suffered. And they suffered it not primarily because of how bad Moab was, but because of their sin, their rebellion against the Lord. And the problem should stand as a warning to all of us, even believers who think that there is wisdom in returning to some of the ways of the world. Remember that cycle of judges, the cycle of, of, of prospering, doing well, a place of blessing. Idolatry always leads to oppression, but repentance always leads to restoration. The people forgot who they belonged to. Praise God. Israel faced three nations because of their rebellion against God. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Malachites. All three of these nations were continual problems for Israel, and all three were connected to Israel by blood. The Amalekites were descended from Esau, Jacob's twin brother. The Moabites and Ammonites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Remember, um, after Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Lot's daughters did a bad thing. They got him drunk, and their father did wrong with his daughters and conceived Moab and Ammon, from whom, the Moab, or from whom these two nations descended. All three of these nations worshipped false gods. The Moabites served a god called Shemosh, the Ammonite, Ammonites worshipped a god called Moloch. Both of these gods were worshipped through vile sexual practices as well as child sacrifice. The Amalekites were a nomadic, warlike people that worshipped a variety of pagan gods. And all three of these nations were a continual thorn in the side of Israel, constantly attacking, hindering, and seeking to slave the people of Israel. Now, now, here's the thing. They had no power to do the things that they wanted to do against Israel when, when Israel was doing as they should. But when the guard was let down and, and, and Israel started acting like other nations, this divine protection and this divine power and authority began to fade away. and It was just a matter of time before trouble came. We don't want to draw too many inferences, but we could think of, of Moab maybe as the power of the flesh, right? Uh, Ammon as the world, and the Malachite, the devil, those, those three foes that we're constantly uh, facing. But when we yield to them, they can oppress us terribly. These three nations joined forces and came against Israel and I'm old school, you know me. My King James says they, they smote Israel. <laughs> they struck them. They hit them. They beat them. They slayed them. 
They came to destroy. They came to destroy. We all have different areas in life we fight. If we're saved, we're involved in warfare every day we live. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. When we yield to God, we win. When we yield to the flesh, the devil, or the world, we always lose. So they're under oppression. They're in a bad place, and Eglon established his headquarters in the city of palm trees. Again, this is probably a reference to the, uh, the city of Jericho, which was maybe partially rebuilt at this time, or it could have been like a suburb of Jericho. Remember that place of great victory not too many years earlier? God had delivered this fortified city into their hands with a mighty, mighty, mighty power. And now here's the people of God, after they'd taken this land, being oppressed from a kingdom headquartered in the very city God had given them. What a sad, what a sad place to be. And what a sad place for us. As Christians, people washed in the blood of the Lamb. You know, people who, we can sing these songs, right, with a straight face. Our Lord has done so much for us when we become a slave to sin. It's kind of pathetic, just like it was pathetic for those people. The Israelites had been foolish. They failed to honor the will of God. They thought that they could enjoy some of the pleasures of sin that the nations had around them. They thought they could have the best of both worlds. Well, hey, we'll have a little bit of God and a little bit of the the things this world has to offer. And this fun led to to slavery. And and slavery, you know, in our minds, we hear that word slave, and we can't, we we think 1800s, right? Slavery. We we think of the American South or or whatever imagery we have, but um, this is what slavery looked like for people in that time. Uh, It meant oppression of every kind. It It meant paying tribute. It meant continual poverty. Um, Guys, if your wife was attractive to somebody of the Moabites, you might not just have a wife tomorrow. How about your daughter? How about your son? Attractive to them? Slavery, oppression, was a very, very terrible thing to be controlled by another. And here God had had, had called these people to be the head, not the tail. Here he called them to show the way, and then they're in this pathetic state. And how sad it is when we are slave to sins. You know, there's great movies, storylines about freedom. Who was it that said, they can't take away our freedom? Remember that from a line, a line in a movie? Is that supposed to be William Wallace? There's great lines about that. There's great stories about nations that that cast off the yoke of slavery. I want to tell you again, the worst kind of slavery that any person in this room can experience is slavery to sin. It's the worst kind. You know, the the, the slaveries out there that, that the world can maybe do to us, they're external 
Slavery to sin is on the inside, and it's a horrible place to be. You may not like Jay Inslee very much, Joe Biden, federal agencies, federal agencies that are ordained of God to enforce laws and punish evildoers and sometimes flip that upside down. The lies. In fact, I've taught my kids, and maybe you have, that generally speaking, the mainstream media only tells the truth when it advances their cause. Lots of unjust laws, lots of crookedness by people in positions of power, but all on the outside. The worst kind of oppression, the worst conspiracy of all, is the type from within. Richard Wormbrandt, the Apostle Paul, many others have experienced great joy, peace, praise, while chained up, while horribly oppressed. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing can offend them. The Bible says, who is he that can harm you if you be followers of that which is good? If you want to really experience oppression, give way to the enemy. <laughs> That's where it's rough. It's, got, it's not God's will for his people to be in bondage. Chapter 15. I mean, verse 15. Israel's in a rough spot. A rough spot. Kind of like the prodigal son story. Tired of eating with the swine. And remembers, where's the power? Where's the power? And finally, Israel has some sense. And what does she begin to do? She begins to cry out to, to Eglon. Oh, Eglon, can you give us a little more mercy? Can we keep back maybe a little bit more of that tribute we have to give you? Do they cry out to Eglon? Now, who do they cry out to? They cry out to the Lord. Finally got tired of it and cried out to the Lord. And actually, that is when the process of deliverance came. The first step in in restoration is always repentance. You know, they'd probably been complaining and crying for 18 years. They'd probably been upset about the conditions they were in for a long time, but whining doesn't solve problems. Being sad that we're unhappy doesn't change things, but crying out to God in repentance for our sins does change things. They cried out finally to the right person with a heart of repentance, and God raised up a deliverer. Verse 15, we learn about Ehud. Ehud was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's allotment of land included the area around Jericho. Uh, Probably the tribe that possibly suffered the most under Eglon's reign. Ehud and the men of Benjamin had plenty of reason for wanting Eglon and his armies gone. We're also told that Eglon was a lefty. Hey, any lefties out there? I've got one. Yeah. A few of you? Great. Hey, there's some references to lefties 
in the, in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Some scholars believe that he was crippled in his right hand. Not that you lefties are, are crippled because you're lefty. Or... Some scholars believe he was crippled. Um, but God raised up this man, Ehud, to deliver his people. See, Ehud came up with a plan, and I believe that God inspired that plan. And every so often, the people of Israel were to pay tribute, and they sent their gifts to Eglon with a delegation led by Ehud. And Ehud took the liberty of making himself a double-edged dagger, some 14 inches long. He strapped his dagger to his right thigh under his cloak, and he went to take the tribute money to the king. His plan was to get Eglon alone, and when he had him alone, he was going to take care of Jabba the Hutt. If Ehud had been caught with a dagger, he would have been killed on the spot, but he was possibly crippled, possibly not the person that people would have thought would have been this great threat. Praise the Lord. After delivering the money to Eglon, the delegation departed. Remember, they had gone a short distance, and, and uh, he says he has the secret message for him, and the servants are dismissed, and Ehud gets Eglon alone and takes care of him. He outlocks the doors to the rooftop, and when they're gone, he makes his escape, and Eglon's servants find uh, the door locked. They think he's in the restroom. And finally, they, they come in and they find that Ehud is long gone. And sometimes we wonder, why are these details, kind of gory details in the body of, 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 of shoving a dagger in and it goes so far and it basically disappears? Just, the only explanation I can come up with is, you know, fighting the enemy is rough business. It's rough business. And you know, we're... In the new covenant, so our job in fighting the enemies of God is to no longer take a dagger and kill another human being. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but I want to tell you what, if you've ever really fought against your own flesh, the devil in the world, it is, it is rough business, and it is every bit as violent as what we read about in here. And a person has to come out to this as like, I'm going after this, and I'm not going to play patty cake with sin. We, we've got to get that same spirit that Ehud has if we want to experience the deliverance that God wants us to have. We have to have that mindset that no step is too great, no price is too high. I'm going to do what has to be done to break this bondage. After Eglon was killed, the trumpet was blown, and that was blown to announce that God had done a great work. That horn was blown to signal that there's a new sheriff in town to praise the Lord, to call the people to war. And God had heard Israel's prayers. He had raised up a deliverer, Ehud, and Ehud had taken that first step of deliverance from enemies he, he had, in a sense, severed the head of a serpent in killing Eglon. And then the people rose up, and man, they just cleaned house. 
on the enemies of God. 10,000 men of valor were struck down that day. Men of great physical strength. And when I tell you, when, when, when we raise up in the power of the Lord, I'll tell you, it's not a fair fight anymore. It's not a fair fight. God doesn't want you to be in a fair fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil. He wants to come behind you because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. They cleaned house. There escaped not a man. God gave total victory. And the land had rest for 80 years. It affected every aspect of life. Every aspect of life. Things were different now for the common man. Things were different now for the child growing up in Israel. There was blessing. There was rest. But the real victory began when they did what? What was that first step? Yeah. When they repented and cried out to the Lord. There's an old gospel song. Some of you know I like these old gospel songs. It says, the first step to heaven is knowing you're lost. First step to heaven. The highway to glory is the way of the cross. All right, here's our application. Israel's victory has a lesson or two or more to teach us about our own battles with sin and the flesh. God has given us everything that we need to enable us to walk in spiritual victory. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us prayer. He's given us the church. He's given us his presence in our lives. If we fail to yield to him and walk in his will, we cannot have victory, but if we make use of, if we avail ourselves of the tremendous weapons that he has given to us, then there's no weapon that's forged against us that can stand. We, not, we need not fear the size or power of our enemies. We are to fight them with everything God has given us. We are to cut off every avenue of escape in every place where the enemy might send reinforcements. We are to fight until every last ounce of the enemy's strength is gone. We are to fight until the day we are called home to be with the Lord in glory. We're not to tolerate even the slightest bit of sin within us. Every vestige of the flesh must be put to death. We're to live every day, as it says in Jude, hating the very garment spotted by the flesh. Deliverance, freedom is for the desperate, willing to take desperate measures. You know, when, when it was kind of a soft oppression, I think that's sometimes the problem that we can be in. When it's kind of a soft oppression, it doesn't seem that bad. We tend to sometimes get comfortable with a little form of slavery. Deliverance is for the desperate. All right, I became acquainted with Calvary Chapel uh, years ago when a next-door neighbor introduced me to his new pastor, uh, Pastor Ben uh, Parkin. Um, I was involved with a, a, a different church at that time, actually uh, serving with the youth at that church. But uh, this new pastor, uh, Pastor Ben, uh, later on brought this uh, sweet little guy to be his youth pastor. You remember his name? 
Greg Stone. And I met Greg, and we actually uh, got to do what we called it at that time, Christian Club, at the junior high for, for years. And uh, we would talk. We had tremendous fellowship. Um, loved, loved that guy and still do. And uh, this is long before he was married and had kids. But I remember talking to Greg, and we, and we, were, we were trying to witness to these kids, and we were trying to uh, give them a vision for serving Christ. And sometimes talk to parents. And, and one of the conversations that we, we had, and it was with grief in our hearts, we would say, you know, it seems like a lot of the parents of these young people want just enough Jesus, just enough Christianity in their kids that they'll stay off drugs, that they won't get into too crazy of stuff, that we won't have, you know, teenage pregnancies and... They'll go to a good college and all those things aren't bad things. But Christianity is so much more than that. Today I believe that many are drawn to our church and it's a wonderful church because they see um, just such a nice group of people. Solid marriages, Solid families. And I'll say this, an island of sanity in a world that's gone absolutely crazy. I'm going to tell you this, um, as a brother and a friend in love, there's no such thing as just enough Jesus. There's no such thing as just enough Jesus. Um, I don't know who said it, but it's so true. It's it's Christ or chaos. You'll be governed by God, or by God you'll be governed. If you choose chaos, it may not come immediately. Just as the children of Israel, you know, when they begin to slide into idolatry, become more comfortable with the nations around them, it may not become immediately, but if you are not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, it's a matter of time before you will fall into, into bondage. And again, the worst kind of bondage is the kind on the inside. Is the kind on the inside. Being a slave to bondage. Oh, it's worse. It's worse than living in communist China. Nazi Germany. It's worse than living in Saddam's Iraq. It's worse than all those things, and it will have a terrible effect on you and your family. Are you enjoying the freedom that only comes from God today? Are you enjoying that? And yes, that's a rhetorical question. Are you enjoying that? Remember, in Israel's day, we're in the New Covenant. This was the Old Covenant. So in the, in the Old Covenant, freedom consisted of, of being in that place of blessing from God where, you know, hey, they could just wipe out those enemies. Man, they were victorious in battle, and God rebuked the devourer, so the people tended to be healthy, and they tended to have lots of money, and they tended to have these big families without 
you know, birth defects or child deaths and just prosperity, prosperity, prosperity. And the new covenant, it's not primarily physical, right? Because some of the most godly people that we've ever known in our lives may struggle with tremendous physical challenges, financial challenges, strife. The great men we read about in the New Testament, so many of them, and women were, were killed for their faith. Oh, but it is a prosperity. It is a place of blessing. It is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. It's righteousness. Oh, being in right relationship to God and the freedom to do what, what is right and not be drugged into all these things. It's peace, and it's a peace in our heart that passes all understanding, which means not the absence of conflict out here, but an absence of strife and turmoil and chaos in here, a peace that only God can give. Oh, and a joy. A joy that is different than eating a chocolate chip cookie or going on an amusement park ride but a deep-seated joy that didn't come from this world and that the world can't take away. If you're enjoying righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, Romans 14, 17, you're a free man. You're a free woman. You're enjoying the blessings of God. If not, if you're not enjoying righteousness, peace, Enjoy in the Holy Ghost. You are under bondage. You're under bondage. You're under slavery. That no amount of guns, no amount of political revolt, uh, no amount of external things that you can do can free you. Only God can set real captives free. Only Christ. And the pattern in the Old Testament is the same as today. First step is we realize we need him. We realize it's not his will. It's never God's will for any of us to be under bondage to sin. It is not his will. We realize that and we cry out to him. We cry out and we repent. We repent of the ways that we've become a friend of this world and an enemy of God. We turn and we trust. And he set free back then, and he sets free now. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Free indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, God loves you, folks. And I'm, I'm not ignorant enough to think that we're all enjoying that freedom that God wants us to have. Christ didn't come and die just so we can go to heaven. He did a lot more than that, okay? That's an awesome thing. We praise God for that, but he came to set us free in this life and in the life to come. And here's a, here's a piece of this freedom too. You know what kind of people can help other people get free? Free people. Free people. Sometimes one 
person that's enjoying the freedom of God. Remember that freedom of God. This is the kingdom of God. It's not about, you know, meat and drink, it says. It's not about this list of do's and don'ts. Oh, there's do's and don'ts. But it's not about that. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But there is an attraction. There's a pull that we all have to people that are enjoying that. And when we're experiencing that freedom in Christ, we're in a position to help other people get free. At the risk of this illustration blowing up, I think I'm going to try it anyways. So this is going to bring back memories, maybe traumatize a few of you. By the way, if you want to wear a mask, that's great. That's fine. But I don't like being forced into it. (laughs) Do you like being forced into it? Do you ever remember going up to Olympia? Not that long ago. You're going into a store and somebody stops you. Go in that store. You know, you're in your bondage. But then you see somebody over there that he doesn't have his mask on. You're a little emboldened. You're like. (laughs) Then you see another person doesn't. And then finally you're like, well, if he can be free, I can be free too. (laughs) Now this is a very little thing, right? A very little thing. A much more powerful thing. Maybe God wants you to be that person in your sphere of influence to to grasp the freedom that is your inheritance in Christ. Whatever might be binding us or hindering us or keeping us from enjoying the fullness of of this righteousness, peace, and joy that we're told are ours in the kingdom. Maybe he wants us to be that person that's like, okay, I'm tearing this bondage off by the grace of God. And maybe you could encourage someone, you know what? Maybe I could too. Would you help me how? Oh, oh, I'd love to tell you. It's Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise God. Let's pray. Let's pray, and then I think we're going to sing a song. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for the stories in the Old Testament. God, we know they're here uh, to do us good, uh, to give us instruction, to give us patterns in how things work. And God, ultimately, we know they're to point us to you. God, we need you. God, help us, your people, people that that you sent your son to die for, people that you purchased freedom for. Help us, God, by your grace, by your grace to receive and enjoy the freedom that you have to offer and be a testimony, witness to all those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen.